Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work in some strange way. And today, I'm really excited to have writer director Roxanne Benjamin here with me. Hi, Roxanne. Hello. Uh, for those of you who are not as familiar with Roxanne's work, please let me give you an introduction. Roxanne is a Los Angeles-based filmmaker who began her career in creative development, analyzing story for film festivals and production companies. In 2010, she moved up the ladder at a company called The Collective, where she went on to produce the well-known anthology horror films, which I'm sure all of our listeners know, VHS and VHS2, which premiered at Sundance Midnights. From there, she co-produced Faults, VHS Viral, and The Devil's Candy, she also produced the anthology horror film Southbound, which also marked her writing and di- uh, directing debut titled uh, Siren, about a band on tour that meets a terrible fate in the desert. Southbound premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival and is now on VOD. I believe you can find it everywhere the last time that I checked. Roxanne then helmed the short Don't Fall, part of Magnolia Pictures' all-women-helmed horror anthology XX, which premiered at Sundance in the Midnight section and served double duty on XX, co-writing and producing the segment The Birthday Party for musician-turned-director Annie Clark, a.k.a. St. Vincent. Now she's got Body at Brighton Rock, which is going to mark her solo feature directorial debut. It tells the story of a young woman working the trails of a mountainous park who finds a dead body in the middle of nowhere and is given orders to guard the scene, facing down all her worst fears. Roxanne is currently working on the remake of Night of the Comet for Orion Pictures, which a lot of our listeners will know from the time that Amber Benson and I talked about that in depth. The movie that you chose to talk about today is one that I didn't think anyone else would choose. So I was like, yes, let's definitely do this out of the the choices that you have. Um, You chose The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about why that's one of your fave films? Um, I like uh, Giallo films in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have a lot of elements that uh, are formulaic across all of them that I feel like pop up in my own work. And... um, uh, it's really fun for a Jello movie, I think. It uh, takes itself a little less seriously mm-hmm. than some of the other ones do. Uh, a lot of it takes place in daytime, which also isn't quite normal. And it focuses more on a wide range of female performances, which I also don't feel like you see quite as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it also just looks amazing. Um, I think the director only had two movies, and this is his second one. And uh, the cinematography is just gorgeous. And I like all of the crazy zooms and, like, ridiculous tropes of Giallo movies. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this is uh, one of those. Well, we're definitely going to get into all of that. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, today's episode obviously will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto, it's not what happens, but how it happens uh, that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause this and watch The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce with a <laughs> somewhat quick synopsis. All right. Written by Fabio Pitoro and Emilio Moralia for release in 1973 or 1972 or 1975, depending on where you lived, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times begins with two brawling little girls, Kitty and Evelyn. Because the original, we'll talk about the other film that has the name Evelyn in it, mm-hmm. too. Okay, so they go so hard, these kids, that one tries to kill the other, and then their grandfather explains to them the curse of their castle, as depicted in a large oil painting. The legend goes that they hated each other from childhood when the black queen resigned herself to enduring her sister's evil pranks and maliciousness in silence and waited for the right moment to get her own back. When they grew up, the Red Queen fell in love with the man and the Black Queen finally took her revenge and murdered her sister, brutally stabbing her while she slept. She stabbed her seven times with that dagger in the picture. According to lore, every 100 years, there are two sisters, the Red Queen and the Black Queen, and the Black Queen always kills the Red Queen, and then the Red Queen rises from the dead and kills seven times, with the seventh victim being the Black Queen. Time goes by. Grandpa's old, being wheeled around by a third sister who we meet only in adulthood, Francisca. One night, a woman in a red cloak with a dagger comes to visit Grandpa, and he dies from a heart attack. Kitty, now played by Barbara Boucher, attends his funeral and the reading of the will, which is totally cryptic, especially about Evelyn, but none of the three sisters are going to get any money for another year until all of this cursed stuff has probably passed, presumably. 
I don't understand this at all. What difference does it make if we inherit the estate now or a year from now? Grandfather didn't believe in that legend anyhow. Well, if you think about it, it's not such a bad thing. Why? Don't forget Evelyn. We'll have much more time now. Oh, and Evelyn doesn't show up. Kitty insists she has been in America these past few months, but a flashback shows us Kitty accidentally killed Evelyn while they were fighting. Francisca's husband, Herbert, says he saw and heard the Red Queen the night Grandpa died. Is it possible the curse is being fulfilled? Kitty returns to her great job of photographing high-fashion models in front of castles, and her so-so boyfriend, Martin, who's got a wife locked away in an insane asylum because that's what happens in these movies. The big boss at their fashion company, Springer, gets whacked in a park while cruising for a threesome, and witnesses say that they saw the woman in red and heard her laughing. One by one, people at the Springer Fashion Company get off, and Kitty's freaked out because the police sketches look like her dead sister, but Evelyn's corpse is still hidden in that castle. The cops think Martin is the killer because he'd have the most to gain, especially have um, when his wife dies on a particularly sharp fence post, which is a great kill. It's a really mm-hmm. fantastic jello kill. After you saw your wife, you talked to the registrar, Professor Wendell. You told him that a certain woman had promised to help your wife escape. And uh, you asked that she be kept under closer surveillance. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess so. I was only repeating what I heard from my wife. I know, but all we have is your word for it. For all we know, you encouraged her to escape and killed her yourself. Yep, and I don't have an alibi. You know, I'd even think I was guilty if I were you. Martin puts clues together to find out that someone from Kitty's aristocratic family had also been sent to the asylum. He goes snooping. Meanwhile, Kitty's in the castle checking on Evelyn's body and doing a bunch of other shit, and she comes across the Red Queen, who is actually a woman named Rosemary from the Springer Company. She may be the Red Queen, but she's also just been stabbed in the back. What? Martin arrives just in time to stop Francisca from stealing Kitty's car and gets her to confess that it was she who actually killed Evelyn, and that it wasn't Evelyn really at all because Grandfather paid a poor family for their kid and sent their own Evelyn off to try to break the curse. I knew the secret of the will. I tracked down Rosemary Newell and got her the job at Springs. I told her who she actually was. I told her of the legend. The legend of the Red Queen. With Peter's help, I got her to take drugs while we blackmailed Kitty with Evelyn's death. Rosemary murdered them all, Hans Mayer. She murdered them all. But the curse ended up coming true anyway. Rosemary was the real Evelyn. More stuff happens. Martin gets to the basement of the castle just in time to save Kitty, who was being drowned with water and rats by Franziska. But they live and presumably things are okay. Despite the fact that Martin cheated on her. And I'm like, really? (laughs) This movie is ridiculous. In the best possible way. It's combining. Okay, I, I think that we should start off talking about, um, you know, maybe filling in some people, uh, listeners who aren't as familiar with the the Jallo genre. Like, how would you describe Jallo? Oh gosh, I mean, it's over dramatic. Yeah. Uh, soap opera esque. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of kind of uh, whodunitness to all of them. There's always a lot of like misleads. Uh, there's usually a woman in some sort of dire circumstances who ends up naked at some point. There's a lot of nudity. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have to t- tend to have a lot of rape in yes. them. Uh, that's another thing. There's always like a black gloved killer, uh, crash zooms, close ups of, uh, of weapons that are being used, usually some sort of knife, mm-hmm. uh, penetration theme. Uh, lots of over-the-top red blood that looks literally like red paint. Yes. Uh, lots of symbolism and stories like this where it's just completely convoluted and there's like 17 different threads that just never quite pan out. But it's always like trying to keep you guessing like, oh, she has a motive. Oh, he has a motive. Oh, mm-hmm. wait, that guy's back. And then there's other characters that you're like, why is this person even in here? They tend to like... <laughs> The, the cinematography, though, is, tends to be very, very gorgeous. Uh, and the locales that they're shot in is also usually very gorgeous. And the scores. I was going to say, the score. Yeah, the scores are also like a big, big thing. There's as iconic to Giallo films as like uh, Western scores are to Westerns. Okay, so I actually think The Red Queen Kills Seven Times has 
more of the loose ends tied up than so many other jellos. It really does. It does. And it's still ridiculous. It's still ridiculous. And yet when I was watching it, I was just like, oh, actually, they did. They 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 sold that. Like, I, it does make sense, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but one thing that this one has, you know, a little difference of um, maybe with the jello that, that came before it is that um, it is combining gothic tropes yeah. with the giallo tropes. And so I think that's something really interesting that we can kind of start with because we're filming in a castle outside of Berlin. Mm-hmm. So it's in Germany. You know, they couldn't really find anything where they wanted to film, you know, like uh, they went to the Swiss Alps. They went everywhere. But this one particular castle, which is a location that shows up again and again in other movies, mm-hmm. that is the place where they, they filmed it. And that is very gothic. Oh, yeah. The family crypt. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's a very gothic trope. Yeah. We definitely all have a family crypt hanging out. (laughs) Yep. That's uh, easily openable, you know, to check on dead bodies to make sure they're still there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I think I feel like Moralia, the director, he, I think, was kind of um, ahead of the pack in combining Jallo with this, like I, I've I've heard that perhaps people were getting tired with some of the like the Jallo tropes, and mm-hmm. they wanted something new, and this was a means of refreshing that. Yeah, yeah, it's it does do that quite a bit. Um, it's funny because that's somewhat what I was trying to do with my movie was also combine a bunch of different tropes from well, different genres. Tell me about that. Tell me about the process of doing that. Because, I mean, like, horror is one of those things where it can get stale. Mm-hmm. For instance, horror and yeah. thrillers can get stale. So what do you do? Yeah. For Body at Brighton Rock, um, I wanted to make more of like a YA thriller rather than like straight horror, but it still has a lot of the horror tropes in it mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, there's some jump scares in there. There's wondering if the things uh, that the woman is going through are real or not, or if it's in her head, or if uh, people are trying to make her think she's going crazy. Mm-hmm. A lot of yellow tropes, actually. Um, and I'm kind of like an 80s kid who grew up with like 70s content, oh, sure. you know? Yeah. So it's trying to combine, like, those aspects of, like, fun 80s kind of, like, camp. Yeah. Um, both camp movies and campiness with kind of uh, a more surreal flowing, like, um, picnic at Hanging Rock. No, oh, sure. Uh, I'm glad that weird. that's getting more attention now again. Yeah, now that there's later. been the remake. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, oh, wait, that movie was great. Yeah, which also it's, like, very... Um, you know, it's also the lensing of that film is amazing, but it leaves you wondering, like, what did happen, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it looks at, uh, you know, the kind of female um, form and, and female relationships, too, of like these these girls in a very kind of uh, interesting way, mm-hmm. I think, which is very interesting to me as a filmmaker, because that's what I'm uh, wanting to do is like films that are about the relationships between girls of that age and that sense of like mystery that we always kind of surround that age with I think is yeah. very um, uh, not served in the horror and genre community and the idea like I, I want to talk about also the combination you know Jallo has this kind of a fascination with for instance the fashion industry mm-hmm. and um, and modernism and the actual look of this film is really fantastic because you know it's kind of the logical ends of Jello because it's putting modernism next to extreme gothicism and yeah. old things and those you know like the old grays next to very popping colors. Yeah, and the dark kind of deep lushness of this castle, with you know the white poppiness, almost like a, you know '60s mod of a fashion model world. Yeah. And also just the whole fashion industry aspect of it all together just feels extremely modern. Mm-hmm. There's, I don't know if you knew, I don't know my copy is wrong, but the guy, Martin's car kept changing color to me. <laughs> it was orange and then it was red. And yeah, then it was that's orange. true. And I didn't know if that was supposed to be happening. Like we were supposed to suspect him when he was driving a red car. I or don't if know. that was just like the color process maybe like exactly. messed up on that reel a bit. Yeah, or... like I couldn't tell. And I was just like, yeah. is this really clever? I'll just say it's really clever. <laughs> but whenever his car pulled up next to the Gothic castles or whenever you see, you know, like these models posing with these very in these old places next to bridges or rivers or things it's it's a really it's beautiful mm-hmm. and you can tell that they're they're really paying attention specifically to the colors and how this is going to look yeah for you the colors that you've got in nature are set 
Were you thinking about having like some kind of modernity come into nature when you were doing Body at Brighton Rock? Like, were you, you know, how do you how do you mess with the colors of nature? How do you kind of? Well, one thing I wanted to do was make it very almost technicolor in a way, as oh. if it was a technicolor process that maybe was uh, run through a couple degraded copies of VHS stock. Um, Again, the 80s. Yeah. So it's that combination of the two things. Uh, I mean, one of the bigger um, influences on the color palette was probably um, uh, (laughs) Old Yeller. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, all right. Yeah. The Bear, obviously. Uh, And and things that kind of have more of that look to them, like almost like... uh, late 70s, early 80s, like TV movie that you would see on like a Saturday morning while you were eating cereal or like at a slumber party or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a hard sell for uh, financiers. Um, If that's what you're... Look, (laughs) here's the plan. (laughs) Um, But uh, my financier producers at Soapbox Films are awesome because they were like, that sounds awesome! Let's do it! You know, so... They're also filmmakers, so they're, like, open to trying, like, something that's a little out of the box and well, a little weirder. If they know your references, too, that means that they also just like films. Yeah. And I think people would be surprised at how many people in the industry, you know, who are making these creative decisions, that kind of stuff, they they, they don't really like film. Yeah. And it's it's surprising to, to go into meetings and to be like, oh, wow, like, you, you're just here to... To do what? I'm not sure. <laughs> Sell widgets, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Uh, Valerie and her Week of Wonders was the other one I was trying to remember. That's oh. a big color reference and kind of uh, that dreamy surrealism mm-hmm. of that film and symbolism of that film was something I wanted to bring into the color palette. But you're right. It's like we're kind of stuck with what uh, nature gives us. Luckily, um, the San, Gim- San Jacinto Mountains are pretty... Uh, epic. (laughs) There's a worse place to film, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about the look and feel of Jallos, and I also want to get into some of the score because Bruno Nicolai is so good. So we'll be right back. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases. I ask them questions. They're good ones. And then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling, my dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a flobie, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Roxanne Benjamin, and we're talking about The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. Okay, so uh, this movie, scored by Bruno Nicolai, um, he was an associate of Ennio Morricone, and people think often that Morricone taught Bruno Nicolai, but it was actually the other way around. Bruno Nicolai was Ennio Morricone's teacher, which is... Interesting. I think it's just because, you know, one is more known than the other. Oh, yeah, totally. And I imagine a lot of people watch this movie and are like, oh, this has a lot of Morricone type stuff in it. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. oh, actually, actually. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> pushed my glasses up. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, the this right here, it's it's a beautiful score. Some of it was actually repurposed. The cues were repurposed in The Virgin of the Living Dead. And I think there's another movie that it was repurposed into. And I think that's a fascinating thing that Italian filmmakers, Giallo particularly, did is they they did recycle these cues, Mm -hmm. you know, and they ended up working in multiple films. And it's it's kind of beautiful. It's synchronicity. And and it kind of ties the whole genre together. Yeah, it's kind of like you how you associate synths, like heavy synths with 80s movies, mm-hmm. 80s horror movies. They all have a very, like, synth-heavy score. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of like what's 
giallo has like its own it's almost like harpsichord like there's a lot of like tinkling sounds yeah, it's and tinkling almost harpsichord, like yeah. western themed stuff that's in there mm-hmm. um, that it's you hear like, a lot in Suspiria too actually yes. and it's a little it's like almost weirdly jaunty at parts where it's yeah where like the images are not jaunty and that um, you know I talk a lot about tonal friction and I, I think that that's something that they really figured out how to do. You know, it doesn't yeah. always have to be. And as much as I love John Carpenter and everything, it doesn't always have to be that kind of like creeping dread. It can be something else, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very big on like kind of using their score almost as sound design. Yes. Throughout a lot of like a, the specific horror moments. Yeah. And like when to pull it out too, and have it play more in silence. But uh yeah, it's and also there's a lot of over dramatic moments that that play really well with the score. Let's go. Let's go back to music in terms of what you were doing with Body Upright and Rock and that kind of thing. Were you? A lot of filmmakers will go in and say, "I like this cue from this movie. I like this cue from this movie," or something like that, and they kind of give this inspiration maybe to the person mm-hmm. who's working on the music and sound design. And I'm I'm curious how you approach that because I do think that we often pull from other things we just don't talk about it Jawa talks about it they're like oh yeah we use that cue i don't give a shit the thing is it's like it's funny because i i don't know a single filmmaker who doesn't temp score Mm -hmm. their film because it's really hard for anyone to watch and edit without that element in it because the score is so important to kind of the tone of whatever scene you're setting uh and particularly in this movie the score is in conversation with Karina, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with Wendy, the protagonist. It's very much like her inner monologue. Yeah. Uh, where, because she is alone a lot yes. of the time. Yeah. It's almost like a silent film through through a good majority of it. Yeah. And that score is um, – that's why actually the cues always come in just slightly early because they're when she's feeling something rather than when you would expect it, which is just that one beat later, which I hope also – serves to throw you off just a slight bit. Uh, but I work very closely with The Gifted, uh, which are my two composers, uh, James and Lewis. And we also did the Southbound score together. They did my score for XX. Um, I've worked with them on pretty much everything that I've had a hand in directing. And uh, yeah, I'll give them kind of, I'll, I'll send them a cut that has like uh, specific inspiration, but they're very good at, we have long conversations about kind of what it is that I want from each scene and what, it, what like, this cue is here for. Mm-hmm. And from that, they're able to kind of pull out of my brain, like, ex- exactly what that needs, yeah. you know? It's kind and of like the note behind the note. Yeah, and you can definitely probably pull out tonal friction within that because it's, like, the expected thing to do here, but mm-hmm. what we want is for this. Yeah, and I also go in, and, and they're so open to collaboration. Like, we'll we'll go in, and, like, we'll pull apart each one of the stems and kind of, like, look at it and be like, do we want this here? Do we want to pull this out here? Do we want to draw this out here? And, and we'll kind of recreate each scene a few different ways and figure out, like, what works best the same way you would in an edit. So I would like to go back then now to Kills. Uh <laughs> <laughs> because we were talking about kills and having seen also the the um, the shorts that you had done for the anthology films, like you've done a lot of kills, yeah. um, fair a fair number of kills. How <laughs> and you know we're talking about the surrealism of Jallo. How do you feel inspired by that in the way that you kill people? <laughs> <laughs> um. I think some of them are pretty over the top and over dramatized, uh, like in XX and Don't Fall, for instance. There's uh, uh, Casey Adams being thrown through the back window of the RV, mm-hmm. which happens in slow motion and has like massive score around it, and then like very dramatic reactions from the other two actors. Um, I have more fun doing that kind of stuff mm-hmm. than like straight kills that would uh, almost be like jump scares because yeah. those are over so fast. Like I probably make a little too much of a meal of kills <laughs> than I should, to be honest, because they're fun. <laughs> it's like the one place where you get to do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's, it is fun like figuring out different ways to do it. And, uh, you know, you look at a lot of different movies for inspiration. Uh also just to see like what's been done before so that you're not you know 
repeating, uh, what is it, rebuilding the wheel? Is that a phrase? So, uh, reinventing the reinventing wheel. Reinventing the wheel. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of those things where a lot of times people do get killed the same way. Horror has a lot of kills. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they get killed the same way. And Jallo, a lot of times people get killed the same way. But it's just in how you show it. Yeah, exactly. And this one in particular has, like, you'd mentioned it before, the fence kill is so great. Oh, it's so <laughs> great. And, you know, we should I should say, you know, like a, a woman, she's climbing the fence of an insane asylum. And it's got those pretty pointy tips to it, you know, the wrought iron. And she's, like, just about to get over. And she's so excited. Her new friend Evelyn has come to help her. And then, oh, no, Ella, Evelyn cuts the, the rope. And she, you know... Gets the the thing right through straight her. through the face. Ooh, ooh, that's a bad one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's funny because a lot of these yellow kills too are just like not that. I mean, that one's particularly gory, and most of them are much more almost like Shakespearean theater. You know, where oh, you're yeah, not absolutely you're not seeing anything that feels like realism. It's like a quick fake stab, and then they double over and like groan. Uh, loudly and die, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's much more of, like, the suggestion of something terrible like this oh, happening. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, uh, Sybil Danning, who, uh, an actress in this film who's who's pretty wonderful, um, she, her character just gets shot in the stomach and she doubles over and she's dead. Like, it <laughs> goes it. so fast. Uh-huh. She enters a room and she's like, I know who you are, shot dead. Okay. Yep. yep. <laughs> I know the whole story. So now what we have to do is reach a suitable agreement. Or else I warn you, I'll squeal. (laughs) There's a lot, too, with, like, uh, the the model who gets stabbed in the back of the truck who just, like, she falls into the knife and then falls to the ground, and then that's it. That's it. Wait, what just happened? Which is funny because that scene was actually written a little bit differently. They didn't have the van. They actually stole the, the van from um, the designer that they were working with, Misha Sean. Uh-huh. And they just stole it because it was like the the mobile wardrobe thing because they wanted a little bit more production value for this kill because it wasn't going to be anything big. You know? Yeah, it was just going to be like one more of kind of the same thing. Yeah, so then they got to shoot it in the van like and bring her out. And I, I, <laughs> I always steal my on-set sound mixer. Uh, uh, I always steal his... Um, station wagon because i work with him on everything and he has a awesome old like 70s station is it wagon. a woody like a wood paneled station it doesn't wagon? have the wood but it's a it's a use it in siren it's the station oh. wagon that they're in and then in this it's he's actually in it driving it um daryl uh at the beginning of brighton rock mm-hmm. when karina's running to work He's driving it down the road, and the license plate says southbound. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice little callback. Uh-huh. Speaking of callbacks, we should mention again that this is um, the second movie that Moralia did uh, with the name Evelyn. Yeah. I don't know if that's just like he... Like, for me, I always end up putting in temp names in scripts. Mm-hmm. And that, well, I guess he didn't write these, so it wouldn't be that. But, like, then you just end up keeping the temp names because you're so used to them. It's one of those things where... The movie, what is it? Uh, what's the other one? Evelyn Rises from the Dead or something mm-hmm. like that? I think it's got a couple different titles but, uh, in different different uh, places it was released, but it's something to that effect. Something like that. Just look up that but and look up Moralia and you'll find this, like mm-hmm. these two movies uh, out on Arrow Video for Blu-ray. Um, Apparently that did really well in drive-ins, especially in the U.S. And so a production company gave him a bunch of money and was just like, can you just do something like that again? And he was like, okay, Evelyn number two. And uh-huh. then- <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, though, because it's so iconic of a character. The Red Queen is so iconic of a character. I know. It's like a demented little Red Riding Hood with, like, a you know, the mask itself, too. It's like it seems to predate... Uh, you know, Halloween in terms of, like, creepiness because it's the same kind of vibe where you're just like, this doesn't quite fit your face. Mm -hmm. And it's just super creepy uh, all around. It's funny to think that these movies played in drive-ins. Like, with how much, like, nudity and, like, rapiness there is in them that there would, these would be playing just in drive-ins. But um, I feel like it, you know, it's, it's much different in European cinema. Like, 
nobody really thinks of nudity as like something weird or like, ooh, like, no. ooh, we can't and show people that, like, nakedness. Ugh. It's definitely, a, they changed the name for drive ins because they actually, people started getting mad, the theater owners and drive in owners, because they kept running out of letters because the name is so fucking long. <laughs> so they had to change it in the U.S. Oh, sorry, the movie is The Night. The night Evelyn came out of the grave is the name. <laughs> Producer Casey That's even just better. <laughs> so the night uh-huh. Evelyn came out of the grave. So they ended up having to change the titles of both those movies just for like U.S. audience because they ran. This was Blood Feast. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And it's not even the other Blood Feast. So like you can't like if you talk about Blood Feast, you have to decide if you're talking about the more famous Blood Feast or this alternate title for this movie that actually goes by the yeah. Red Queen Kill seven in, times. In Russia, they changed the name of Body at Brighton Rock to Death Path. <laughs> Which I was like, that's great. I wish I had thought of that. That's, that's an great. awesome name. And it sounded like Magnolia kind of like tentatively emailed me about it to be like, um, so they want to change it to this. Is that cool? And I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> Somebody send us the Blu-rays. Um, but that's another yellow thing. All of the titles are like full sentences that you're like half of them. You're like, what does this even have to do with what the movie is? It's like another misdirection. You're like, why did you spend this much time? Yeah, I, I don't fucking know. <laughs> but I think it. I mean, it's a weird thing. Moralia was older. I think he was like 70 or something when he was directing these mm-hmm. movies. And then he just disappeared after 72. And I think his production designer from this said that he um, he died shortly after making these movies. Like oh, a few wow. years later. So, uh, But nobody no- really knows. Yeah, yeah, no one really. I think the production designer is the only one who actually has like an, a lead on what happened to him. Whoa. And he just died. It was like, oh, well, you make these two classic movies that, yeah. that people love and you don't get to live to see people really appreciating your work. Oh, that's a such older. a bummer. It is. It is a bummer. But, I mean, this lives on. Uh, <laughs> we should talk a little bit about um, some of the actors in here, too. Barbara Boucher. She, she plays our lead. She's stuff around yeah. this time. Um, also, she, uh, it's funny because it's like another thing that I feel like you don't really see in these types of movies, especially like in the States, like any sort of like genre movie. It's almost like our lead females are virginal and it's like the mm-hmm. final girl is always like the ch- the chaste one and uh in giallos it's like there's lots of like free wheeling sex going on and it's not a big deal at all and i mm-hmm. kind of love that yeah there's no morality clause yeah. with who dies yeah exactly it's it's lovely um and she you know, as far as we know, Barbara Boucher's character enjoys sex to whatever, you know, it's a free sex She's life. having an affair with yeah. her boss. Yeah. And, you know, he's having affairs with other people. And, uh-huh. you know, it just is what it is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I do want to bring up that rape scene that you were talking about, because there is one central rape scene here. Yeah. But they directed it and edited it so it could just be taken out. So that's one Which of the interesting things. Which is so things. weird. Like, why would you even put it in then? It was supposedly to satisfy the appetites of European cinema goers. For what they expect out of this kind of movie. Yeah. And and that's one of those things where that that part of horror has always made me uneasy, this kind of perpetuation of sexual assault as titillating. Uh-huh. You know, and then and that kind totally. of where you're just like, I love these things and yet I'm really fucking tired of this constantly happening. Yeah. Luckily in this one it doesn't really show it. It just kind of, but it also shows like a terrible aftermath where she just looks like completely traumatized as you would be and she's like fully naked. Also, this is the guy who's like tell me where your sister is. I love her. Blah. And it's like mm-hmm. and then he's like a total dog. I almost like, two out seconds of nowhere. later. Completely out of nowhere, like out of character. Yeah. From how he's been the entire movie, which yeah. <laughs> Jello. <laughs> yep. All of a sudden, it's like, well, I guess I'm going to rape her now. Uh-huh. My but, my intentions have completely changed from scene to scene. I think the aftermath thing that you're talking about, though, is something that is very different about this Jello, though, mm-hmm. because I am not used to seeing the aftermath of a sexual assault in a Jello that actually looks like legitimate. Yeah, she's got makeup all down her face. She is weeping. She is broken. Uh-huh. We don't return to that state of mind. We never get to see her again. And yeah. I think it was because they were like, well, we have to put it in here. And so, you know, when he shows up again like two minutes later in the film, like she's like, oh no, just don't don't come in near me. But So there's no resonance after that. Yeah. But that one scene is still very poignant. 
yeah, it's it's really weird because it doesn't affect anything else that happens in the movie. <laughs> like from there on, it's not a plot point. Nope. Uh, and it also happens. I feel like it happens a little late in the movie too. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, what is this? What is this even doing? It's like the first day he was just like, oh shit, we forgot the rape. Do we have time to pick up the rape? Yeah. Is that? We, do we get some? Is that? We can get it before lunch. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. We can do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Would you? I mean, I think some filmmakers say that they wouldn't portray a rape in their film. Others say that they would. I mean, how do you feel about that? I've never really thought about it, to be honest, just because most of the the like genre fare that I'm drawn to is much lighter. And as you said, YA was kind of your yeah. kind of principle for Body at Brighton Rock, too. Yeah, and and I think it's you know not necessarily important like oh genre film is doing something to change the world but like yeah. it's important to to show i think what real world dangers there are and not to coddle people away from those mm-hmm. but then there's also a point of like you said gratuitousness to some of these things where it's like do we really need one more of these i'm sure it just depends on what the movie is and how relevant it is to the plot and the character and mm-hmm. what the character is going through or if it's metaphorical or what have you um I don't know. Sexual violence is just something that I'm not particularly attracted to when it comes to genre. Again, because you don't really run into that in like light, lighter kind of, uh, you know, like I would be more interested in like making a movie like Tremors and you're not going to have like a traumatic rape scene in Tremors. Oh, you know? God, I hope not. <laughs> oh, I, haven't, I haven't seen Tremors 3 through 18. I don't know I what know, the rest same. is like. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about costuming and some other fun stuff about Jalo. This is Amy Mann. And I'm Ted Leo. And we have a podcast called The Art of Process. We've been lucky enough over the past year to talk to some of our friends and acquaintances from across the creative spectrum to find out how they actually work. And so I have to write material that makes sense and makes people laugh. I also have to think about what I'm saying to people. If I kick your ass, I'll make you famous. The fight to get LGBTQ representation in the show. Mm-hmm. We weirdly don't know as many musicians as you would expect. I really just became a political speechwriter by accident. Accident of realizing that I have accidentally uh, pulled my pants down. <laughs> Listen and subscribe at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcast. It's like if the guinea pig was complicit in helping the scientist. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Roxanne Benjamin, and we're talking about the Red Queen kills seven times. Okay, costuming. I mentioned earlier that um, there's uh, Misha Schoen, I think, is the costume person for mm-hmm. this. And um, she was a designer. I think that she worked with um, uh, uh, Jackie Kennedy after uh, her husband died and some other folks. So she was actually pretty big in Germany at that time. She was doing some things that were interesting. But I guess um, Moralia went to her and said, hey, this will be really great marketing for you. If we get to use all of your clothes. And so they had this agreement that Barbara Boucher, the lead, would get to wear the top shelf clothes. Mm-hmm. And then the other characters would wear the kind of like lower type of like streetwear kinds of things. But what ended up happening in addition to that is that most of the actresses and actors came uh, with four versions, like four outfits, uh, and put them on a rack. And the costuming person kind of just, you know, clean them up but allowed them to choose like they got to choose what they would wear in each scene because they were like what would your character wear and so they like felt comfortable in their clothing Mm -hmm. uh, because it was theirs and then they got to kind of personalize their character through their own clothing that's great yeah I didn't know that which I'm sure it was great on the budget too yeah it's funny because that's something that you usually do for extras Yes. In a movie, like you don't, you know, normally have the budget to cover a bunch of extras. So they bring a couple changes of clothes yeah. and then you're picking between like what it is that they've brought and mm-hmm. maybe adding one or two things from wardrobe. Yeah. At least in like low budget land where I live. Uh, that's what we do. So it's awesome to hear that that was also the case in these movies that even had like bigger budgets back then yeah. than we have now. I mean, like Sybil Danning is wearing, like I think, all of her own clothes except for... Like one time she's wearing a coat that's not hers or something. Mm-hmm. 
It's funny. I just uh, worked on Creep Show and my lead actress in one of the episodes I did. It was kind of the same thing where like I had this total plan of what she was going to wear and it, you know, matched the office that she was in in a really cool way with the accent colors. And then, uh, you know, I saw her in it. And then saw her in one of the other outfits. And you can just tell, mm-hmm. you know, when someone feels more confident and comfortable in something. And I was like, yep, we're completely changing it. We're changing all of the other things to go around this outfit instead. Because you can tell that she inhabits the character better in this. So it completely makes sense that if you're letting people choose, like, some of their own things. But I'm imagining most of these actresses were also models. So the stuff they were bringing in mm-hmm. was probably, like pretty high class to begin with. Yeah, just a little bit nicer. I mean, at least it was of the time. Right. I fucking love all the outfits in this. I know. Even like the weird pantaloons jumpsuit that Rosemary wears at one point in time with a beret. I was like, what the fuck is that? And also I'd fucking wear it. Yeah. And I love it because they made it work because they put her in the fashion world. Yeah. So that like everyone could have these like super kind of she-she outfits that you wouldn't necessarily be like, why is she wearing that? And she works in like a, you know, journalism department of a, you know, high school? Like, what is happening? What is this? And then there's also um, uh, the guy who plays Martin. I don't know if he picked it or not, but he's got that short robe kicking. Oh, yeah. Like, the robe that, like, (laughs) barely covers his genitals. Uh Showing some leg. Yeah. (laughs) But his apartment, we should say, his apartment is this kind of famous locations apartment that I don't know who was living there at the time, but there are these blue and green and white stripes painted across the entire apartment. Mm -hmm. And it is gorgeous, but I would never want to live there. But it is also a kind of um, nod to the way that Jalos, you know, they heighten realism. Oh, yeah. 100 percent. Suspiria always makes me think of that because everything just seems like a constructed, a construction of reality rather Mm -hmm. than reality. And this is doing somewhat of the same thing. And it's giving you a lot of production value out of maybe just like rather than just like, well, here we are in an apartment with Mm -hmm. its white walls and uh, some furniture and paintings. Um, It's making that a character and a reflection of the actual character themselves and and who they are. Do you feel, I mean, what is your... I guess it's different for production design for Body of Brighton Rock because you were working with nature, so you're not necessarily, like, building sets, really. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm curious, you know, what is your opinion on, on, you know, just building something weird that you haven't seen before? Have you had that chance before? A lot of people don't get to build sets because they're working in indie. Right. And it's just (laughs) not a budget available to that. Well, for me, it's more finding the locations that work on low budget. It's one of the reasons I shoot so many things in nature because Mm -hmm. you're getting so much production value out of it. Oh, I thought you just really loved nature. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm just terrified of nature, so that's why all of my horror movies take place there. (laughs) yeah, and and like in Southbound, uh, the locations there, like the house was a lot of that was there that had that very like '60s mod desert look to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was all part of the actual house that was there. So we found something that uh, worked for, with the bones, and then my production designer added in elements and pops of color. For that, it was blue. Uh, for this, it was blue and yellow. So um, I guess I have a blue thing. Uh, didn't think about that. but oh, weird. Uh, yeah, weird. The Andu Jar twins, uh, Hillary and Courtney, are my production designers on Brighton Rock. And uh, they had worked with a couple of other filmmakers I knew, and they had recommended them. And they did a great job, I think, in making the Nature Center feel like something. Yeah. Rather than it just being like, oh, like a normal little museum place that you go and you pick up the pamphlets. Like, they made it feel like its own character, mm-hmm. uh, which was very cool. And then the sign. I love the sign with the bear um, that has, like, the little maps on it and all of the little kind of elements of things that she has. Like, those flyers that she's posting are all part of what they're doing. And uh, little things like that that are little elements that kind of play with that color palette mm-hmm. uh, really well and make it kind of like almost uh, poppy uh, out here in the middle of nature where everything's, you know, green. But I also you have to have all the things. greens, yeah. too. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Okay, all the so greens you... and blues were, like, pushed as far as they could go Was it into, like, a technicolor look. Was it naturally green when you were out there, San Jacinto? Yes and no. Like we were in the middle of we went winter, so, I, so that's why there's greener. so much leaf cover everywhere. But like the skies are pulled super blue. All of the greens are just like 
neon green almost. Mm-hmm. Just to give it that kind of Valerie in her Week of Wonders vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that people are going to be looking at the Valerie of, uh, her, in her Week of Wonders after this. I've never seen it. Oh, it is bonkers. Really? Yeah, it's another one that you're just like, what? So I'm trying to sense a a connection between the things that you like. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of surrealism in them, actually. A lot of surrealism and a lot of, like, symbolism of things rather than the actual things. Yes. So there's one thing I wanted to talk about, and that had to do also with some of the locations, too. Um, Sometimes a little bit about the real Italy and uh, kind of soaks through in these things. And they did, um, most of the shooting was still actually in Italy, but they did the castle and some other, the exteriors in Germany. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I thought was really fascinating is when you go to Martin's apartment, there is outside mounds of dirt just outdoors. It's something I didn't notice like the first time I watched it. The second time I watched it, I was just like, oh, that's really odd. That's so strange because it's this really beautiful apartment. It's very modern. You have all these modern buildings around it. And then there's this these giant mounds of dirt all over the place in the background. And it's something where I you know, was listening to some of the commentary track and they were talking about how a lot of Jallo uh, or Jolly, it's the plural, I don't know, um, a lot of them actually end up showing this thing about the economic boom of Italy that I don't think that they were trying to show because there was an economic boom in Italy and then there was a bust. And so they had built all these really beautiful places, but no one could afford to live in them. And so they're filming in these locations. And this is one of those where they're filming in where you can tell that there's a kind of desolation around there, where it's like there's one person who succeeds, and I guess that they're living in this beautiful apartment, but everything else is just kind of empty. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I didn't know that at all. It's a weird It's a weird thing. We're like, oh, I guess there's a little bit of truthfulness in the background of uh, a Jello movie. Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever feel like you set out to tell a story that is fun and delightful, but then you end up accidentally including deeper messages that maybe you weren't even thinking about? Um, I don't know if it's accidental so much as, I mean, this is kind of saying the same thing in like a pretentious way, but like more subconscious. Oh, yeah, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> it's not really accidental so much as subconscious um, that you do start to see in the edit. And when you see it in the edit, you can pull it out, like as in bring it forward, yeah. not pull it out of the film. But yeah. you can bring those themes forward a little more. Uh, which is part of the editing but process. But it has to be surprising when you see it. It is a little bit, and it's something that like sometimes you don't notice until somebody else points it out, and you're like, oh, yeah, you're right. All was of there... those things are actually true. Anything in Body and Brighton Rock that you can share? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything specifically in that that keeps popping up thematically. I, I can't really think of anything necessarily because that has so many different things themes I'm trying to work in at once mm-hmm. that they're very tightly controlled and intentional. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't room to add in any extraneous yeah. stuff. Just no because more meaning. Yes. No more <laughs> meaning. No more meaning. Because the whole thing is very like folkloric. It's, it's you know, much more of like mythological or folktale than it is um, like a traditional like horror genre story mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, someone unprepared for life goes out and uh, has to, through a series of trials, become prepared for life and because they've become prepared for life now they can face real world dangers mm-hmm. so that's kind of the whole arc that she's going through so all of those elements of like the fact that it feels like a western and that it's has the 80s campy fun vibe uh and then kind of brings that back a little bit towards the end and and the color all of that stuff together is meant to feel like one collective experience that we're going through with her and that that's how she sees the world. It's mm-hmm. very much a subjective world of a naivete that mm-hmm. turns into darkness. And then even when we get through it, you think like, yeah, we're doing it. And then calamity strikes yet again because that's what life does to you. But because you've managed to deal with your inner fears, you can now deal with like outer real world fears. So putting all of those little pieces in there and someone who's just so unprepared for the situation that they're in um, was very intentional. It's funny because uh, the one criticism I feel like that does come up is that people are like, she does so many stupid things. And I'm like, one, I've done all of these things. (laughs) And I grew up in the woods and I am that idiot. Yes, that is me. Um, 
a lot of them, to be honest, <laughs> including like getting completely spooked by like a deer and rolling down a hill. I legitimately did that. Uh, and I grew up in the woods. But um, it's, it's people get angry that she continues to make mistakes throughout her ordeal mm-hmm. uh, as if you're suddenly like able to handle your situation halfway through mm-hmm. with no real change to you as a person. I don't know why we expect that to happen. Like mm-hmm. where you're suddenly in this movie in particular, like she's not going to suddenly be like Bear Gryllis, like wilderness god. Yeah. Like and suddenly <laughs> know how to do everything. Um, and so the challenge is just keeping people empathetic with her, even though she makes dumb decisions, because we want to stand in for uh, the audience wants to stand in as the like lead character. We put herself ourselves in her shoes and we don't want to look at our own faults and our own shortcomings. Mm-hmm. So when we see them in other people, it makes us angry, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I found very, very interesting. That wasn't something that I had anticipated. I had anticipated people would think, you know, she's a little bit ditzy and unprepared and, you know, make some some wrong decisions. But I did not anticipate their anger, uh, which is, yeah, which is probably the biggest surprise I had in, in any sort of like reviews of the film. Maybe they should watch more Giallo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and speaking with me today. And you guys can see Body at Brighton Rock in the theaters. And then you can also check out Southbound and XX on uh, your VOD, wherever you choose to watch it on. And Brighton Rock will also be on VOD on Friday. Oh, wonderful. So yeah. you can do both. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. We've got one today from Daniel8383. says, Uh, It took me way too long to start listening to this. I've loved April Wolf's writing for a long time in the late lamented LA Weekly and other places. I've loved finding out how funny and smart she was listening to Who Shot Ya, so I should have started listening to this as soon as I found out about it. Thank you so much. This podcast is informative, informative, funny, and so entertaining. I love hearing these women talk about these movies, some of which I've seen, many of which I love, and many I didn't. But this gave me new perspectives. Another great April Wolf project. Thank you so much, Daniel8383. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, then you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group, too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. She murdered them all. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.